BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome into a post-trade deadline edition of At The Yard, along with Jim Salisbury, who's over at the ballpark for the Phillies day game to end the Phillies Giants series. I'm Corey Seidman. And again, we are presented by the 2019 Humana Rock and Roll Philadelphia Half Marathon. More on that later. But, Jim, this trade deadline has come and gone. Uh, It was the one hard and fast trade deadline of July 31st, and the Phillies did not make any uh, big-ticket acquisitions, more of kind of an underwhelming trade deadline. Just curious for your reaction to not only what happened yesterday, but really the, the, the last two months of acquisitions by the Phillies and what they were and were not able to do. Yeah, um... Underwhelming, I think, is probably the right word, uh, but understandably underwhelming. They're not really in a position, uh, unfortunately. I mean, the season hasn't gone like anyone envisioned, or especially them. Uh, but they're not in a position where they can, you know, give up a prospect or two and get that one big ticket item that is going to ensure you play well into October. And that is because, like I mentioned, things just haven't gone well for the team. And uh, they have multiple holes, probably four or five holes that you just can't address in one trade deadline. Um, so they're forced. Uh, you can't address in one trade deadline, I should say, without gutting your farm system. And they don't want to do that because they want to try to continue to build from within. I think any successful team has to have that approach. Uh, so they're forced to kind of tinker around the edges. And, and they've done that uh, over the last few weeks. I mean, Jay Bruce was acquired to help on the bench. All of a sudden, he's in the lineup because Andrew McCutcheon gets hurt. Uh, Drew Smiley was basically a cast-off from Texas and then an opt-out with Milwaukee. He's in your rotation now. Jason Vargas was a uh, salary dump from the Mets. He's in your rotation now. So, um, you know, they, they have a nucleus of players that we were all excited about coming out of spring training. That nucleus uh, has underperformed uh, or been injured. Uh, but there's still, you know, some of that nucleus left that has to play better uh, if this team is going to see a wild card berth. So it's like trade deadline is over. Corey Dickerson's a nice, nice addition, nice piece. Um, should help a little bit. And um, it's not now a two month sprint until uh, till we see if they get to uh, the wild card. Corey Dickerson is not in the Phillies lineup Thursday. Uh, what do you think? In ter- I heard Matt Klintak, Phillies GM, say uh, on Wednesday that they plan to kind of ease him in because of the groin situation that he's dealing with, or maybe Kapler said that. One of the two officials said that. Uh, wh- what do you th- sense in terms of timeline for Corey Dickerson? Could he be a pinch hitter just for a, a few days here or a week until he's ready to go? Or, or w- what's your read on that? Well, he as, we sit, as I sit here in the ballpark uh, two hours before game time on Thursday, he – was not in the clubhouse this morning. I would expect he could arrive, um, you know, later in the day. Maybe they could make a roster move to get him on. And uh, if they ease him in, I think they could certainly use him as a pinch hitter. But uh, I don't know that they're in a position to ease him too much. I mean, you got to get him out there and play. He looked pretty good to me out in Pittsburgh 10 days ago. Uh, I, I would think he could approach regular status in left field uh, with Hazley going over to center field. Kingery coming into third base and – Michael Franco losing playing time. So 
We're going to see. They certainly, they certainly need offense. I mean, we mentioned multiple holes. They need, they need more help in the starting rotation. They didn't get it. They need more help in the bullpen. They really didn't. Uh, I think that could actually come back to bite them a little bit. And, um, but you know, going into the trade deadline, I thought they needed a bat, and at least they got a pretty good one in Dickerson. Uh, he's been a pretty good hitter throughout his career. So, uh, in that regard, I think they inched things forward. I like Corey Dickerson a lot as a player. I mean, I've watched him throughout his career. He's been like a consistent 290 hitter with power. He crushes righties. Over the last two seasons, Corey Dickerson has actually slugged 32 points higher against righties than Bryce Harper. Not saying that, you know, he's going to come in and make a a star-level impact, but this is a guy who can, you know, impact winning over the second half of the season. It kind of reminds me in some ways of the Wilson-Ramos acquisition. Last summer, Ramos came in here, hit 337, although he could barely move on the base paths. Uh, That's not as much of an issue with Dickerson. He's a good fielder. He's a good runner. He had a multi-homer game earlier this week despite dealing uh, with that minor groin issue. You mentioned um, the moving parts here, that it could result in Michael Franco moving to the bench. The other thing that I've been, you know, seeing and noticing lately, I'm sure you've been noticing the same, Scott Kingery uh, not catching up to fastballs lately, swinging and missing a ton in the month of July. He's 19 for 99. Uh, Gabe Kapler moved him down from the leadoff spot to the sixth spot. Where do you think Corey Dickerson slots in in the lineup? Not, not in terms of what position he plays, but where the Phillies might hit him and where do you think he fits best? Would it be toward the top or do you think more so as protection for Bryson Reese? You know, I think... Uh, at the outset, um, they could take a look at him in the leadoff hole. Uh, I think that's where I would lean because they've had such a problem there since McCutcheon went down. Kingry's had, you know, I think 20 the last uh, 28 or 9 games there and hasn't really uh, done the job there. They could, they could use a leadoff man. I know he's not a pure leadoff man, doesn't walk a ton, has had some big strikeout seasons, but, you know, at, at times, you, you can have success when those guys get hot, when they get hits that can fuel their on-base percentage. So I, I think I would give him a, a look in the leadoff hole and see at least how it works for the time being. And um, if it doesn't, I certainly think he could be a guy that would be a candidate, you know, to hit six, uh, which is a good RBI, RBI hole on this team, uh, especially if Hoskins and, and Harper are, you know have that on-base percentage that they usually do. So I think Gabe has some options. Uh, with Dickerson. As far as Kingery, you know, he's really struggled in that leadoff hole. He went to six last night. Uh, we'll see if that gets him going. I just see kind of a guy who's caught in the middle a little bit. Um, I think this season, you know, last season, I think he lost his aggressive approach. Uh, he tried to bring it back this season. Then they put him in the leadoff hole, and I, I almost can see the wheels in his head turning a little bit like, okay, am I supposed to be super aggressive or work this count like a leadoff man? And I, I wonder if he's gotten you know, kind of a little lost uh, for that reason. So I actually think getting him down uh, into a spot where I think maybe he can look to be a little bit more aggressive, maybe get some men on base and and, and look to be aggressive uh, might help him a little bit. Uh, hopefully it does because they certainly need that bat. We saw how good it could be uh, early in the season. No doubt. And I remember us talking on the podcast a few months ago. Phillies fans have been clamoring for Scott Kingery to move into the leadoff spot after Andrew McCutcheon went down because of how hot Kingery was. And I remember saying on here, writing on the website, just that you don't want to mess with this guy's approach. Scott Kingery is, I don't see a player who really is ever going to be a passive, uh, selective hitter up there. Scott Kingery is a swinger. He's an aggressive offensive player. And yeah, there was the concern that maybe he would mentally try to be more of what the traditional leadoff hitter is. 
Uh, we've also seen him make, you know, one or two pitch outs to begin games, which is not a bad thing. You know, let the guy do what he does. Just lately, it really hasn't, um, you know, it hasn't been working. Uh, Jay Bruce, close to returning, would you say? Yes, I think we're going to see him sometime on that uh, West Coast trip, which starts Monday in Arizona and then has uh, includes four games in San Francisco. I think we'll see him on that trip at some point. I think the acquisition of Dickerson um, will put Bruce back into the role that he was intended to be in when they acquired him in June. Uh, you know, kind of a part-time starter and almost a nightly left-handed bat off the bench. And, um, you know, maybe that shrink of workload actually could help his productivity. Uh, we'll see. But I still think he's going to be a very valuable guy, and he's going to get, he's going to get his shots. Uh, they, they need that pop. They need it whether it's off the bench or as a part-time guy. But, yeah, he, he is close. And interestingly, I also took, he also took some balls in center field the other day. I just wonder. Jay Bruce? He, yeah, I think it might have just been a workout, um, testing things a little bit. But he took some balls in, in early uh, early work. And, you know, hey, trying to get a, a bat in the lineup, maybe he could go stand there for an inning or two. Who knows? You hear the uh, national anthem in the background. Again, this is At the Yard. I'm Corey Seidman. He's Jim Salisbury. We're presented by the 2019 Philadelphia that's uh, just the practice anthem. Oh, uh, it's just the practice anthem. Maybe there is. Do, that I have for... to stand, do I have to stand up for the practice? <laughs> you know, I think you should. I think we should uh, take a moment Hold here. Hold on, I'm standing up. Okay. <laughs> Want to let this play out? Uh, I think we can talk through it. Okay. Loud enough. Hey, so okay, you mentioned Jay Bruce uh, taking some balls in center field. May or may not have been meaningful there. I heard Matt Clentak say in the press conference yesterday that Corey Dickerson could stand in center field. I thought that was an interesting way for a GM to phrase it, you know, maybe the way I would phrase it, because I don't think Corey Dickerson's really an impactful center fielder there. But do you think the Phillies are going to experiment with things like that to just try to get as many good bats in the lineup as possible? Because we saw again Wednesday night that, man, this offense can go in the tank. It's possible because, you know, with this pitching staff, if they're going to make a run at a wild card, they need to really – out offense people, out slug people, out hit people. So you could see uh, situations where they just try to optimize as many bats as possible, maybe sacrifice some defense. Um, I do think there's a chance we're going to see a lot of Paisley in center field for the simple reason he has to play. He's sort of um, one of these guys that, and he's played pretty well. Uh, they need he can't come up here and sit. He's a developing player. I mean, he needs to be out there uh, getting his reps. So uh, I would think he, he could get a whole bunch of them in, in center field and play a passable center field, though I don't even think he projects as a center fielder uh, long-term. But, you know, that's that's what you're going to have to do to get bats in the lineup uh, because pitching has been so suspect, you need to kind of out-hit people. Jim, Vince Velasquez on Wednesday night uh, pitched pretty well for five innings. Not pretty well, pitched really well for five innings. The heater was working, he was missing bats, and this is a guy who last season had two really solid outings Um against the Giants, 12 strikeouts in one of them. The other one, it was six and a third innings, one run. And then in the sixth inning, Velasquez ran into some trouble. And the numbers are startling when you look at Velasquez first time through the order, second time, third time. As we sit here, his opponents have hit 192 the first time, 194 the second time, and 515 the third time. What do you sense the rest of the season that the Phillies are going to do in this rotation? Because you have Jake Arrieta, who really can't go deep into games. You have Vince Velasquez, who can't go deep into games. Uh, there was the idea earlier this week that was floated that Zach Eflin could perhaps piggyback one of those guys. But with Vince Velasquez, 
did you the, the decision to keep him in in the sixth inning last night? Did, did that seem like an open and shut? Like okay, he's pitching well, keep him in. Or do you think the yes. Phillies have to? Be, or do you think the Phillies have to be a little bit more proactive, knowing that he's prone to kind of falling apart that third time through? I think knowing you got Arietta coming the next day, if you can squeeze an inning, more, another inning or two out of Vince Velasquez on a night when he's dominant for five innings, you've got to give it a shot. And then it went in, it just fell apart quickly in the sixth inning. You know, he walks uh, Mike Yastrzemski and then uh, uh, 2-1 pitch to Posey, uh, executed at the top of the zone where they want it, but it's only 92. Posey gets a good part of his bat on it. Home run, game changes. And he knocked scoring enough runs to... Uh, bail anybody out so i don't have a we pick the pick apart gabe's moves all the time uh and sometimes justifiably so i have, I have no problem with that move at all i mean at some point you gotta if he's ever going to figure out how to get through the middle innings you got to give him a shot especially on a night when he's dominating yeah i mean the, the offense was much more so the culprit in that loss in the middle game of the giant series it was the 33rd time this season that the phillies have been held to two runs or fewer which is third most in the national league ahead of only the Marlins and Giants. It was also the 25th time the Phillies have been held to five hits or fewer, again, ahead of only the Giants and Marlins. And, and only one extra base hit. Yep. This team's got – they don't slug. you got to slug, man. Uh, you you look slug, up and, and you got to slug consistently. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you look up and down the lineup, there are three guys in this lineup who have an OPS over 800. Bryce Harper, Reese Hoskins, and Scott Kingery, who, as we mentioned, is kind of slumping lately – there just is not enough pop throughout, and that's why, again, the Corey Dickerson acquisition could be important because when we entered 2019, we thought that this Phillies team had one of the deepest lineups in the National League, but then they lost Andrew McCutcheon, and they lost Odubel Herrera to a suspension, and Michael Franco, it's been the same old story. So, you know, suddenly it became, instead of a one through eight, more of like a five-hitter lineup. So if you can add one more depth piece to it, it could, you know, it could make a big difference, but... You know, we'll see. We'll see how much of an impact Corey Dickerson's able to make. I thought this was a pretty strange trade deadline across baseball. I was expecting more activity. I know that there was the big headliner of Zach Grinke moving to the Astros, but, you know, take that away, and the biggest deals involved relievers, you know, like Shane yeah. Green going to the Braves. So in that regard, it wasn't as exciting a trade deadline as, as we're used to. What, what did you think of this, it being the first year of this hard and fast July 31-1 trade deadline? Well, I like the one trade deadline. It's uh, you know crazy to have a trade deadline and then have a have a have another one. So a deadline's a deadline. So now we have a deadline, uh, but it just tells you the price that these teams were looking for for pitchers. You know, Robbie Ray, uh, Matthew Boyd, uh, uh, Mike Miner. None of them. They all stayed with their teams, and they've been you know they were all shopped. But uh, the the cost for um, good young, controllable starting pitching is outrageous uh, in terms of the prospects you have to give up. And uh, that impacted the Phillies in a big way with a thin farm system, with maybe a handful of um, prospects they really like, other teams liked as well, and they wanted to gut the Phillies system. And Matt Clintac uh, had to sit on those guys because, um, you know, he just doesn't really have a team that projects to go deep into uh, October and a team that would have needed three, four, five additions, not just one, to get there. So I think he was judicious in protecting those guys, and um, I can't fault him on that. I think this team's – I still think this team's great failure was not the work at the trade deadline. Uh, it was not having enough uh, uh, pitching and uh, starting pitching coming into the season and enough of these guys that they were counting on come through. 
Uh, so yeah, it was it was a uh, it was for, locally for the Phillies. It was kind of the trade deadline we expected, and uh, you know more globally, the prices on on pitching pitching is so thin. The pricing on, price on pitching is so outrageous that we didn't see a lot of those big guys move. Of course, we saw Granky move, but you know there was there was more nuance to that. That had a lot to do, I believe. Although although uh, Arizona uh, or Houston gave up some prospects, some, some legitimate prospects. Uh, they also took on a good bit of money there, like fifty-four million dollars. So there was there was a lot to that deal, and what a monster rotation they have! Whew. They have, and that's the type of move you make when you think you can win the World Series for the second time in three years. You know, you let it all hang out, and you go out and you try to win that World Series, and you you make up that fifty-four million dollars in a heartbeat, and the revenues that that you're going to make by uh, winning a World Series, in, in you know, and then the uh, cumulative effect that World Series has. In, in seasons uh, that will come after that. Yeah, it's kind of reminiscent of the Phillies adding Roy Oswalt that year as kind of like a finishing piece, a veteran starting pitcher who's been a top-of-the-rotation arm. I want to ask you more about Grinky here in a second, but just a heads up, you can stream NBC Sports Philadelphia's pre- and post-game live here, kind of trade deadline analysis from Jim. You can stream pre- and post-game live, daily shows and unique specials around the Phillies, Eagles, Sixers, Flyers, Live and on demand with the NBC Sports Philly Pass. Go to NBCSports.com slash Philly Pass. That's NBCSports.com slash Philly Pass. Jim, pertaining to Zach Grinke, I remember us talking about Grinke a few months ago in relation to the Phillies and, you know, positing that maybe a team would be able to acquire Grinke just by taking on his remaining salary because it was so exorbitant. But then we see that the Astros, as you said, gave up two legit prospects, their second and third best pitching prospects, according to the, the websites that rank these things, in J.B. Bukowskis and uh, Corbin Martin being the other. Uh, were you surprised at how much it took to acquire Grinky? You mentioned that there's uh, more nuance to it. Just what was your take on that? Well, he's a great pitcher, and they're obviously trying to win a World Series. Uh, so they, you know, I, I'm not sure maybe they're the Astros are, as are, are as high on at least one of those pitching prospects as maybe people around the game are, but um, they took on a significant amount of money, you know, uh, to it probably would have cost the team uh, more. They would have to take on more money to give up uh, lesser prospects. So um, I'm not surprised Greinke went to Houston. He had a no trade clause. Uh, I don't think he could block Houston, but it seems like a good fit, fit for him. He's a guy that really shuns the spotlight. He's a recluse. And, um, you know, though, though it's a, Houston's a big city, uh, I don't think it's a tremendously huge media market. And I think he'll be able to blend in behind Verlander and Garrett Cole on that rotation, uh, kind of seek that comfort zone that he likes and uh, do a good job for that team. Yeah, I don't know if he would have been, you know, a great fit personality-wise in Philly, which is such a sports-crazed town that, you know, this Sunday night the Eagles have their only open practice to the public, and we are going to be streaming it live on NBC Sports Philadelphia. So, you know, that just kind of illustrates the, uh, the, the how seriously Philadelphia takes its sports. Be sure to check that out this weekend on NBC Sports Philadelphia, Sunday night, 7 p.m. through 9 p.m. Jim, were you surprised to see real, legit World Series contenders like the Dodgers and Yankees kind of sit on their hands? I was really surprised to see the Yankees because they have starting pitching issues. But it, basically what we've been saying for the last half hour, the prices are so high for pitching, and, and Brian Cashman is going to be protective of his system. And, and uh, they've done a pretty good job you know, doing that. Uh, they've brought some really good young players to the majors in recent years that have, that have had an impact. And they, have a, they have, always have a deep system, but 
I just think he thought the prices were outrageous as well. They could end up regretting that, uh, not adding more pitching, you know, especially against a team like the Astros, who can who can really dazzle. Uh, I thought that the um, I thought the Dodgers could have used a little more uh, back end bullpen help, but uh, the prices were pretty high there. I mean, you look at the Braves. I mean, they're you know I don't know if many teams can beat the Dodgers in the National League. I think the Braves though are one of them. Believe it or not, I think the Nationals are one of them. If so they, do I. If they, if they were to get in with those three guys at the top of their rotation, and um, you know Alex Anthopoulos, he's a he's a he's a uh, he's an aggressive guy, the GM of the Braves, and he went out and got a uh, a, a guy in Shane uh, Shane Green who's an All Star closer, having a great year, and, and that's a really good pickup uh, for them. But yeah, it is very interesting to see the Dodgers, the Yankees, even the Red Sox, uh, you know, not not do a lot. It just tells you what a um, you know, the cost of doing business on this market was really, really high. Yeah, you know, I saw a report this morning that, you know, Zach Wheeler, who was a rental, a two-month rental, the Cardinals were interested in him, and it was going to require them trading either Harrison Bader or Tyler O'Neill, one of their young Major League-ready uh, contributing outfielders, which kind of just shows you what teams were willing to ask for, even for two-month pitchers. Like, that's a really high price to give up years of control of a player who's already contributing in the majors, you know, for two months of a mid-rotation piece. I would think that the league office sees this. They see the unintended consequences of what has happened with the, the two wild cards. You know, the, the expectation was that the additional wild card team would keep more teams in it and keep more teams active and trying to improve. But it's almost like what it has done is it has made teams shy away from adding if they're in that position because why trade years of control? Why trade an intriguing prospect just to get yourself into a one-game playoff? Do you think that we could see either the playoff format or the way payers are, players are paid change here over the next handful of years because it has affected free agency, it's affected the trade markets, and it's made everything just move a little slower and, in my opinion, a little more boring? Well, definitely more boring. Uh, we could see the trade deadline move back a little bit so the uh, contenders can emerge a little bit more and then come up with a with an, with an approach, a buyer or a seller approach. And As far as players paid differently, that's something that's, I think, definitely going to be an issue in the next CBA. What's that, two years or three years away? But, I mean, that, that's going to be a real uh, fascinating negotiation as the union tries to funnel that money more to the, you know, players with uh, less service time that um, front offices are clearly placing so much value in. So, uh, those are that's something that's going to be, I think, a major um, uh, issue coming up, and we could see some serious changes there because it's clear front offices just value uh, modern front offices value players a lot more differently, and it's up to the union to really respond and um, you know try to get those guys compensated the way they sh- think they should be uh, in the next negotiation, the next CBA. Jim, you are no stranger to trade deadlines. You've covered plenty of them. Um, <laughs> is there any anything over the years like stick out to you story wise, or just enter, you know entertaining tidbits that you wanted to share? You know, I've had uh, yeah a lot of trade deadlines. Uh, you know, I remember covering the minor leagues. I was covering the Kentucky uh, Red Sox, and I was this was I guess eighty eight or eighty nine. You'd have to look it up. But I was sitting in the press box at McCoy Stadium in uh, Pawtucket and uh, um, the Red Sox, you know, this was pre-internet and we were starting to see this thing coming, coming across the ticker. Uh, Reds, the Red Sox traded this 
pretty much unknown double A kid named Jeff Bagwell for a guy named Larry Anderson. Uh, I believe it was on deadline day, but it was really, I mean, looking back, that was kind of remarkable to see uh, how that evolved and, you know, covering the Red Sox triple A team. A lot of the players knew this guy Bagwell because he was right behind them. He was in their, in their double A system. So um, that certainly was memorable. And then covering the Phillies has had a few memorable trade deadlines. One of them, Ed Wade was the general manager. Andy Pettit was pitching poorly for the Yankees. This might have been like 99-ish. And Steinbrenner had had told Brian Cashman, uh, get rid of Andy Pettit. We're, um, you know, we're going to trade Andy Pettit. And Ed Wade was the Phillies GM. His top lieutenant in those days was a scout named Gordon Lakey, a great scout. And uh, Gordon was a huge uh, Andy Pettit guy. Just thought Andy Pettit was a great pitcher, and he was. And the Phillies tried real hard to get Andy Pettit. And they it looked like they were going to put together the best deal and get Andy Pettit. And I remember deadline day. I think it was a Saturday night. Uh, in those days, it was midnight. And uh, we were in Atlanta, and the Phillies had played this game, and we're just – the game didn't even matter. All that mattered was, okay, we're in the final hours before the deadline. How are they going to get Andy Pettit? It, it, it was so close that Carlton Lower, who was a pitcher for the Phillies, uh, had agreed or offered to give up number 46 so Pettit could wear number 46 because that was his number. And then at, at quarter of 12, at quarter of 12 – George Steinbrenner went to Brian Cashman and said, forget about trading Andy Pettit. And at 10 of 12, Ed Wade emerged and said, we're not getting Andy Pettit, they're not trading him. Uh, that was really memorable. And I remember catching up with Cashman at the GM meetings uh, that fall and asking him about this story. And he told it just the way I told you. He said, George told me to trade Andy Pettit. I went out and tried to make my best deal. The Phillies presented the best deal. At quarter of 12, he poked his head and said, forget about trading Pettit. And that's how the deal almost came to fruition and how the deal almost fell apart. Um, so that was a very memorable trade deadline um, and confirmed and witnessed by my eyes, but confirmed by both teams. Uh, other ones, I mean, the 09 deadline when the Phillies were going after uh, Roy Halladay, and it was it looking like they were going to get Roy Halladay. I went up to Toronto. I watched his last start there. I followed him to Seattle, which would have essentially been his last start or uh, ostensibly been his last start with the Blue Jays. And I remember it was like record heat in Seattle. Like the papers were blaring. Uh, it was 103 degrees in, in uh, Seattle, and he was pitching in this heat. And the papers were carrying stories about how the hottest day ever in Seattle history. And I remember the look on Halladay's face after that game as on the TV – the Phillies changed their direction and acquire Cliff Lee. And you can see Cliff Lee on the TV shaking hands in the Indians' dugout in Anaheim. And I remember the forlorn look of disappointment on Roy Halladay's face that he wasn't getting traded to the Phillies. And how close did he come to being traded? Um, the Phillies, after, you know, the Phillies were playing the first game after the deadline in San Francisco, and they had a uniform with number 34 on it, and it said Halladay on it. And it was in an equipment truck. And it was buried in an equipment trunk, I should say. And um, they ended up printing up another jersey, number 34, for Cliff Lee. And Frank Kopenbarger, the, uh, the equipment man in those days, would tell you that he has no idea where that, what happened to that, that original Roy Halladay jersey. And that's how close he came uh, to being a Philly. But and I'll tell you one more of my favorite trade deadline stories. It's, it's, it's really entertaining. It shows you how much the world has changed. 
Uh, it was 06. Phillies are making a surprise wild card run uh, in the month of August. Now, this is when they had two trade deadlines, the, uh, the, August, uh, the July 31st and then the August uh, deadline at the waiver um, to get guys on the postseason roster. So the Phillies are playing a Sunday day game at Shea Stadium. And um, Pat Killick is the GM. Ruben Morris, the assistant GM. Like I said, they're in a surprise wild card run. And uh, they're playing a Sunday day game in Shea Stadium. They get rained out. And uh, they're going to make up the game on Monday. Pat Killick decides he is not going to stay for the makeup game. He is looking for a way back to Philadelphia. Does not want to take the train. Uh, he catch- I had driven up that day with Paul Hagan from the Daily News, Hall of Fame baseball writer. He catches wind that Hagen and I are driving back after the game and says, hey, you mind if I jump in with you and get a ride back to Philly? Uh, that's how, uh, how down-to-earth Pat Gillick was. <laughs> Jumps in with a couple of, couple of hacks and gets a ride back to Philly. So anyway, incredible. We're, we're, driving back, we're driving down the BQE coming out of Shea Stadium. It's raining. And I remember the Verrazano Bridge was coming into, uh, coming into our sights. And my cell phone rings. And it's Ruben Amaro Jr., the assistant GM. And he says, uh, is my boss with you? I'm like, yeah, he's in the front seat. So I hand up the cell phone, my cell phone to Pat Gillick, who had a cell phone but never answered it. Pat Gillick and Ruben are talking, and Gillick's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, uh, okay, let's hope we can get him. We're going to get him here tomorrow. Okay, right? He hangs up the cell phone, and he says to me and Hagen, we just traded for Jeff Conine. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, but there's nothing I can do with this story. There's nothing. There's no Twitter. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I call it into the, to the newspaper desk, and Pat Gillick says, you can't write it yet. You can't write it um, because the trade is not official. We need the Orioles game to end. Once the Orioles game in Camden Yards ends and Jeff Conine gets out of that game healthy, we're going to get Jeff Conine. So now we're driving down the Jersey Turnpike desperately trying to pull in WBAL on the car radio. And finally, I remember we get it. Like halfway down the Turnpike, you hear Fred Manfred saying, and the Orioles have, the game is over, and now all of a sudden word comes up. Jeff Conine has been traded to uh, Philadelphia. So um, basically got to witness that trade going down in real time on the Jersey Turnpike, sitting next to the general manager of the Phillies who pulled it off on my cell phone. It was really memorable. Uh, have you driven Matt Klintak or Andy McPhail around over the years or not not as much? Never have uh, even been in a car with those guys. That, I, that's an I incredible maybe, story. Maybe, maybe that, yeah, that is uh, – that's just – that's Pat Gillick, man. He was just so so – so just a different guy, just down-to-earth guy. Makes a trade in the front seat of uh, Paul Hagen's car with me in the back seat. And once the trade was official, I pop over my laptop, and I started writing a column about this experience. Um, and I think the dateline on the uh, story I used was uh, um, somewhere on the Jersey Turnpike or something like that. And I just wrote this story about how this whole trade came down, how, how um, Pat Gillick wouldn't answer his cell phone, so Ruben had to call my cell phone and, and ended up pulling off this trade uh, and, and just kind of witnessing it. And they ended up getting Jeff Conine. And um, they had to wait for him to get out of that game healthy and trying to pull the, the Orioles game in on the staticky radio station. It was really funny and memorable. And that was probably my favorite trade deadline story, even though it was the secondary trade deadline. That's a story you can only get here on At The Yard. And the only way to do a half marathon is to rock your way through the city of brotherly love at the Humana Rock and Roll Philadelphia Half Marathon on September 15th. With a half-marathon 5K and all-new 7.6K distance, there's a distance for everyone. A flat, fast course through the heart of Center City, featuring live bands and an epic finish line in front of the iconic Rocky Steps, complete with beer, 
Philly pretzels, and a cover band. Sign up today at runrockandroll.com. That is runrockandroll.com. First off, Jim, that Andy Pettit story, think about how much different the last 25 years of baseball could have been, you know, had, the, had that trade went down for both the Yankees and the Phillies because Andy Pettit had a borderline Hall of Fame career minus the, uh, you know, the PED situation. But, wow, yep. that, that's incredible. And the Roy Halladay trade being that close – You've never told me that story before, the, uh, uh, being with Halliday and seeing that look of disappointment on his face as the Phillies instead opted to acquire Cliff Lee. But, wow, just thinking about how different things were when you, you relayed that Pat Gillick story. And you said that was 2006? It was when they got Conine. Right. They a little surprise run uh, for the wild card. I think they got more of that that August, and uh, they got Conine. And, um, yeah. That was, was – uh, I mean, that's just incredible because – that's 2006. I mean, people have this perception that, like, the world changed and maybe in, like, the mid-'90s, late-'90s. That's 13 years ago, and that's how and much different funny. things were. They, they, traded, um, they traded Bobby Abreu at that break. I'm, not, I'm sorry, at that trade deadline, at the uh, July 31st trade deadline. They traded Bobby Abreu, essentially waved the white flag, and then went on this run and then shifted again and said, oh, we need some help for the wild card and got, and got Conine and uh, Jamie Moore, who, you know, those veteran-type tweaks that can really help you. I remember that well because it was almost like when Abreu was traded, that was the passing of the torch to the guys like Jimmy Rollins and that core that, okay, this is your team now. And once that went down, they went on that run, and it was, you know, that kind of paved the way for the years to come. Uh, One last thing I want to hit you on, Jim, and that is the David Robertson injury because that was one of the most significant pieces of news, really, in the National League yesterday. Besides all the trades, the fact that David Robertson was going to undergo season-ending surgery, you got to wonder whether he's going to pitch at all for the Phillies in 2020. What a disaster that signing has been so far, huh? Yeah, and you can extend it. Tommy Hunter, they signed him to a two-year, I think it was an 18 or 19, $18 million, I think it was, and they 18, got one yep. season on one season out of him, he goes down after five starts, season ending, and Pat Neshek is uh, was a two-year, sixteen million dollar, and has missed significant time both years. It tells you the risk that you know relievers, uh, mid thirties, high mileage arms are, and I think they have to maybe uh, adjust their approach on those guys. Yeah, fifty-seven point two five million combined to Pat Neshek, Tommy Hunter, David Robertson, all two-year deals. The Phillies didn't get a healthy season out of any of them, which is just incredible. Uh, David Robertson, I think you said the other day, you rattled off the stat, nine, nine seasons with 60-plus appearances. So the Phillies saw that, and they see this guy has a track record of being reliable and being able to pitch a lot. But you got to wonder, whenever you see stuff like that, when is the tipping point? Like, when is the guy's arm going to wear out? And David Robertson was supposed to play such a key role for this Phillies team, and now they might not, they might not get more than the seven appearances that he gave them earlier in the season. We've seen that they the, might not because if it's if it's a flexor surgery, you know maybe he gets back next year. If it's Tommy John surgery, which the, the possibility uh, that second opinion could reveal him needing, uh, then he'd probably be out all next year. So his career could be in jeopardy. So yeah, you you, you, you just never know. It's the, the pitching arm is it's so fragile, and um, you know he was so such a workhorse for so many years, and then. And one day it's all done. Late inning relief is going to be another thing on the Phillies checklist this offseason because if they don't have David Robertson, they're going to need to fill that spot somehow. And I don't know if they're going to go, like you said, I don't know if they're going to go that veteran relief route with a guy over 30 who has had a track record of reliability because of what they just experienced. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what direction Matt Klintak and the Phillies front office goes this winter in that regard. Jim, thanks so much for the stories and the trade deadline analysis. 
We'll catch you here next week on At The Art.